All right. Good morning, planet Earth. It's five o'clock in the morning on a beautiful, clear day. Almost a full moon. Stars are bright. Mars and Venus are to be seen. <clears throat> they form a line across the moon with Venus in the east and Mars in the west so that you can actually navigate by them as well, which is pretty damn cool. And you can tell the time because when the moon is straight above, it's three in the morning as we know from yesterday. Yeah, and the moon's already past that. <clears throat> so stars are your friends. So people, I have been fighting with myself over what to say on this episode. And um, I guess conflict is good. A little bit of a uh, stress will kill you. Might bring out something good. So I've been keeping a journal, but I have my own little code for writing. And I draw diagrams. I don't like write sentences. I draw like little diagrams. Basically words with lines between them. Connectives. And um, I, I, I came to the idea that from a functional perspective, it doesn't matter how your program is encoded. Or what type of encoding you choose. So basically, what I'm trying to say is that you have some program <clears throat> and it gets read in to a compiler, let's say, and spit out and it goes through all these different intermediate transformations and it's spit out to a uh, another program and then it's loaded back into memory so it's going through all these different phases and steps and okay there is some information loss along the way there are some transformations that are not reversible So not all the transformations, not all the representations contain all the information and can be reversed. But if you were very, very skilled and had all the knowledge, enough background knowledge, you could reverse those transformations. So let's say, it depends on their context, 
they become more dependent on external clues to do the reversal. So the programs become more stripped down and you lose more and more information as you go. But not all that information is necessary for execution. <clears throat> and especially when you get into optimization, where programs are fundamentally modified and transformed into new programs. <clears throat> So, and I know you're all dreading to hear this. You're like, oh God, I hope he's not going to go on one of these four-hour rants about introspector again. And I'm not. So you don't have to turn off just yet. Tune out. But I wanted to kind of put these in, into words, some of these ideas. And um, what other place do I have to do? I mean, I could just write it down. But we're kind of trapped together here on this walk. And I got to do my walks. I'm really noticing the positive benefit of walking. I f I'm feeling absolutely great. Um, I've walked a million steps in the last two months. And uh, my legs aren't rubbing together anymore. Can you imagine that? At one point on one of my walks, my legs were rubbing together and I, they literally rubbed the skin off. And I was completely sore. And actually that fat has been pared down so they're not even touching anymore. And a lot of fat has been burned off from this. Um, I used to be really skinny. I saw some pictures of when I first met my wife. And I was super skinny. So, whew. yeah, spare ribs and having, what is it called? A uh, sympathy belly. When your wife gets pregnant and you start eating with her. Well, that took its toll, becoming a father. But I'm getting back into shape, and I'm also protecting my knees. Not jogging, not running, just walking. Carefully walking. As fast as I can go without overdoing it. Now I just listened to Abs in a Six Pack, and we're scheduled today sometime to have a uh, podcast with him, one of the guys, Pokemon on the go. So I'm waiting for his message, the bat signal. I'm going to try out the clean feed podcasting software or recording software. But uh, to get back to this idea of programs, People are like, well, if you can transform it into a Turing machine, 
then that's all you need to do. So they have some base representations. Or if you transform it into a lambda function, or if you can encode it into a series of bits. So I've been listening to the guy um, who we did the Lex interview with, <clears throat> who doubted artificial intelligence. Um, the guy who did all the NP-complete stuff, Robert. I'll have to get my phone out and look up his name. But I was listening to a lecture from 1993, and he was going over all the uh, NP-complete stuff, and I can finally get, wrap my head around it. After all these years. And it's like, let's represent a program or all the inputs to the program as a series of bits. And we want to know if it terminates or not. And uh, this is like the halting problem. Or a decision problem. We want to decide whether it halts. Or decide if the program is valid. So, I might lose a lot of my listeners, and we do have quite a few topics, but um, all of this is being recorded, and we will come back and revisit. One day, my friends, one day, we're going to reach the critical mass where I either get thrown in jail for the things I've said, or <laughs> we... Um, rise out of this chaos and create a new form of a podcast. Season 3. That's all edited. Once I can figure out how to do that. And it might just be going back and listening to hours of rambling and picking out juicy bits. We will see. Now, <clears throat> it's kind of funny how Venus is always in the same spot. <sighs> or how they move around. And I guess it's about the relative positions of the Earth and the stars and how long the years are and how fast they're spinning around the sun and what's their plane of orbit. All different types of variables. Now, if we talk about representations of programs, we literally can um, we literally can get into all different things. And if you think about these programs, there's literally millions of different programs you, you can look at. 
and you know if we talk about these stars and talk about equations it's like well yeah let's calculate equations let's make a program that multiplies two together two times two times two and keeps on going it spits out the numbers I mean those are just simple little things so there's a question of when you get from math into programming and whether an equation is a program or input to a program <clears throat> and then how would you express an equation well you have tech latex which is used to express all these different equations. And it itself could be considered some kind of programming language. There's MathML, there's all types of math notation systems. I never really got into that, but LaTeX is an interesting system if you've never heard about it tech from Donald Knuth, the god of computer science, the man who created computer science and created all the books. I mean, that guy is the ultimate geek. He's like the geek's geek. And he's like, well, what if we just take all the operations that will be executed on an input of length n and add them up <clears throat> and look at the loops what are the loops and he came up with his own assembly language or his own machine language his own abstract machines the mix <clears throat> and then um, he did program analysis in those assembly languages so uh, let's see what that message is who's writing to me Yeah, Donald Knuth. So he was basically adding up all the assembly level operations and saying, well, okay, we have loops. Like, how many loops do we have? And how often do these loops execute over um, <clears throat> over the input? Now, I guess you could take function calls as jumps and jumps are the basis of loops or it's basically go to go to this position and 
that's when we get into the Turing machine, where it's like, compare these numbers and jump. <clears throat> and that's like a basic assembly instruction as well. But going from a mathematical formula down to compare these instructions and jump, I mean, we're losing a lot of information. And, um, but, uh, I'm just thinking that we could probably get away with not going into all the details of the representation at this point considering all different possible representations equivalent except ones that lose information like if you take a function call and turn it into a conditional jump right you're kind of losing some information right or turn it into a jump you're kind of losing some information. So we'd have to have a separate channel for communicating that. And we talked about this as well on the, on the show. It's like for every step, you're not only producing the output of the function, but a side channel information. So we just get more into bookkeeping, accounting, and more complicated forms of storage of this context information. <clears throat> and then <clears throat> functions to reverse those uh, transformations. can be considered like let's generate some source code back out from whatever representation we've reached like do a reverse transformation so that's about it for now that was the one idea that I had so basically ignore the representation and just focus on like a functional description now the next idea I had was using Linux perf. So, so the perf tool captures information and it writes programs for you. Well, it's a language and uses LLVM in the just-in-time compiler in the kernel to um, compile expressions. And I was thinking that we could have, for a given library, we could generate a whole bunch of interesting points to profile in different ways to analyze it based upon the information that we have collected. <clears throat> so we could actually create 
um, and analyze, generate and test all types of different profiling information for monitoring how these functions are actually running. And we could do so with while capturing where the data came from, like we talked about. So that's idea number two, that we um, use perf, the perf tool in Linux, coupled with information from the compiler to generate really fine-tuned frameworks, um, better frameworks for monitoring code. Okay, so those are the ideas for the day. And now back to a word from our sponsors. <clears throat> yeah, I was talking to my dad. He's like, well, where's you, where are you going with this podcast? What's your exit strategy? And as I said, the exit strategy is either we're going to go to jail for being too radical. All right. I'm going to lose my job. And um, my freedom of speech will be in impinged and everyone's going to leave me no one's going to talk to me because of all the horrible things I've said or we're going to reach another level a better higher level of understanding and thought and together you and my non-listeners my two listeners or some of my listeners in the former community so I guess I'm lacking consistency but that's the whole idea of the stream of random so I have a wide range of topics I'm interested in random geeky things and uh, we go where our interest and curiosity takes us <clears throat> And um, for a while we were doing political stuff and um, really right now I'm interested in getting my mind right, getting, um, filling in on the gaps in my learning. Even though I did study computer science, I didn't study it far enough as I should have. I didn't get all the way up to NP complete and I never really 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 understood all of the um, theoretical limits of computation let's see here I'm going to have to mute this one channel for a little bit So, um, 
So I wonder where we're going today. I've got this humongous backlog of podcasts to listen to. And it's ever-growing. The New Books Network. I mean, people are writing books at such a fast clip, and they're reviewing them. And they're so interesting. Um, Let me read off some of the ones that I've collected that I want to actually do on this podcast. And then maybe uh, you and I can decide. So, Thomas... Barstelman, just like us. The Americans struggle to understand foreigners. The American attitude towards outsiders has always been ambivalent. The U.S. is a nation of immigrants. It's the most demographically diverse great power. But on the other side of that spectrum has been anxiety about and hatred for the foreign. from the English-only movements of the 80s and 90s to the continued power of America first. I mean, this sounds interesting. You know, we might learn more about America first. So, uh, that's the oldest one I have. Let's, uh, let's listen to some clips, and I can get this, check this one off my list. All right. Here we go, kids. Okay, well, good thing we got this out of the way. The first clip, and I think one of the only clips I'm going to have from this podcast, is on American exceptionalism. And he's basically saying that, um, from a historian's point of view, um, you have to view the world separately as from a citizen. And exceptionalism is an ideological point of view to motivate citizenry and not interesting from a historical point of view, which views America as being distinct and not exceptional. So really the question is, are you on the in, are you wearing the hat of a patriotic citizen? Are you wearing the hat of a historian, an alien, an outsider? And I guess a lot of times I feel that way myself as seeing the world from the outside that of an alien stranded on this planet. That's kind of how I feel most of the time. So, yeah, I'm going to play this clip, but the audio is extraordinarily bad. I don't even want to spend time listening to it. I hope this podcast audio is much better than that. So, um, which is one of the reasons why I don't like doing remote calls. I'd rather record directly on the mic, even if it is while I'm walking. It should have provided higher fidelity than this stuff, so we're just going to have this one clip and then we're going to move on to the next podcast and and start cutting these down. Differences in how they've understood themselves over time. Yeah, uh, Americans are, this this question of comparison is really interesting to me because exceptionalism, American exceptionalism, Dexter, that's, you know, that's an ideological construct. That's something that people use for cultural warfare these days. And so that's fine if they want to use it, although it always, it's not fine because it's, it's rooted in profound ignorance, I guess is what I really should say. But it seems for historians, it's a, it's a red herring. It's not, 
useful in any way because it implies that there's a a, a, stand, a rule for social development of different societies and countries, you know, and that you have and that there everybody else is in following that rule, that pattern, and that the U.S. stands outside of that and goes in a different direction. That's preposterous <laughs> because every society has its own distinctiveness. Uh, and but you are right that the comparisons I try to offer there do sometimes show the United States as particularly far outside of the bell curve or you know, way down out on the edge of the bell curve, I suppose, in the distribution of characteristics of societies. It, it's, it's a distinctive play. It's more distinctive than some others, which is not the same thing as being exceptional. Um, and, pe- and also exceptionalism is about how you feel about the country. You know, there's a lot of sentiment involved in that and you know, rooted in people's parents and people serving in wars, et cetera, all of which is terribly important for citizens, but not so much for historians because we're we stand outside and put a different hat on to think about this stuff. And then we can go home and feel about it how we want to in our citizens' lives. But so historically, the comparative part really interests me because um, most of the writing about American history, and I would assume most of the writing about all nations' histories. Okay, let's look at the next podcast. So next up is David Livingstone Smith on inhumanity, the dehumanization and how to resist it. It says the phenomena of dehumanization is associated with atrocities such as the 94 genocide in Rwanda and the Holocaust in World War II. In these and other cases, people are described in ways that imply they are less than fully human as a prelude to committing extreme forms of violence against them. And he analyzes what dehumanization is, why we're prone to for it, how we can resist it. All right, this is a powerful clip. And he talks about how can we resist dehumanization? And he says, look in the mirror and realize that you're human and all of the so-called monsters of the past, all the evil people were human like you and you have something in common with them and that we come from a history of of violence and it can happen again and that the people in power come to power wanting to cause us to dehumanize the other group and that happens on both sides of the political spectrum I see where one political group wants to dehumanize the other. So he has some very powerful statements and he gives you a lot to think about. And I think this is a great clip that summarizes uh, what he's saying. And uh, we're going to uh, play that and then we're gonna move on to the next podcast because we have so many to go through. And I'll put the links in the show notes so you can listen to them in entirety as we go. But I think we're getting a taste. Plus, this guy's audio is great, by the way. But I don't want to uh, clip the whole thing because <clears throat> we've got to keep moving here. Able to. 
So I think we need to look more to the future and, and look to the young people. You know, um, now, in my view, there are several factors we need to, as I put it in the subtitle of the book, resist dehumanization. And one is to understand we're all vulnerable to it. Um, that is, there are psychological weaknesses in all of us that allow people in positions of authority, political authority or religious authority or scientific authority to, to manipulate us and, and to, to get us to think about others in this sort of way and to, to sort of override what I believe is our natural tendency to think of all others as the same kind as us, as human beings. You know, we're highly social animals. This is built into us. You look into another person's face and automatically you see human. So it takes a lot of pressure to override that. But, but propagandists are often very skilled at using techniques uh, um, to, to do that. In the book and in other of my, my writings and talks that I've given, I talk a lot about this psychoanalyst, Roger Monikarl, who went to Germany in 1932 and listened to Hitler and Goebbels and sort of extracted a formula of, of political persuasion on that basis, which he published in 1941. I think it's utterly brilliant and, and really, really helps us see what, what these people do. But for the moment, I'm not concentrating. For the moment, I'm concentrating at us. So self-knowledge really helps. And um, part of that self-knowledge is understanding what it is in us that is receptive to that sort of propaganda. And part of it is, is acknowledging that we're all capable of it. Um, because the tendency, of course, is to do the opposite. The tendency, like people would say, well, if I were living in Germany in 1938, I wouldn't. Yeah, sure. Um, that's, that's very few people <laughs> are capable of that. Um, that's very, very important. And part of the importance, and a lot of people get upset when I say this, is to understand that there aren't any monsters. Monsters are fictional. Stalin was not a monster. He was a human being who did terrible things. Hitler wasn't a monster. Goebbels wasn't a monster. They're all human beings. And that's very important because our attitude towards them should be to look in the mirror that they hold up to us what we're capable of. Okay, so that's a big part, the self-knowledge bit. And a kind of humility, a kind of acceptance of what the terrible things that we're capable of just as human beings when placed in certain situations. Another is a proper understanding of history. Nations are born in violence. That's how it is. And everyone in the world has, in, has been unjust to others and has blood on their hands. I, I think it's very important for all nations to hang out their dirty laundry and to, to teach history to young people in a way that doesn't minimize this. And for the simple, well, one reason is truth is important. But another reason is, if you recognize that we, whoever we is, have done it in the past, you recognize we're capable of doing it again. And, and that, that encourages a kind of vigilance 
right? We mustn't let it happen again. But just saying, oh, we can't let it happen again. That's Those are empty words. <laughs> Unless we take the steps, we acquire the knowledge, we implement the educational policies that are likely to minimize the likelihood. That's all inside. But there's also outside. And that's having um, institutions that protect us as much as any institution can, because any institution can be subverted. You know, right now in the United States, we have the Constitution. Yeah, right. The, the Weimar people fought that too. Uh, uh, what's, what's been created can be destroyed. But we need to do our best to support that, to support uh, um, uh, an independent press, and, and to call out those who use dehumanizing rhetoric to try and get us to think of others as less than human. I think that's the best we can do, all those things. But here's the problem. There are two problems. One is the dehumanizers have the best stories. Fear motivates very, very powerfully. Um, so it's an unequal contest. Uh, the other is that there, dehumanization happens because there are people in high places that want it to happen, that want us to think of them, whoever they are, as subhuman, you know, creatures that need to be destroyed or need to be constrained. So those in power very often don't have the sort of investment in constraining this process that, that we would like. One of the things that you bring, David, in... Okay, so in this next podcast, we're just going to zip through these podcasts here. In The Great Mistake, How We Wreck Public Universities and How We Can Fix Them, Christopher, Christopher Newfield um, diagnoses what he sees as a crisis in American public higher education. So, <clears throat> what he's saying is that there is a systemic, systemic racism in the funding of the universities where the, um, where the um, amount of money per student is going down the more non-white students are in the school so that as soon as the schools diversified, the funding went down with it. Um, <clears throat> and he's saying that the uh, people of color are underrepresented in um, in institutions, in funding, uh, in the public sector. So. Uh, that's, a, that's an interesting way to look at it, and um, he says he's done the math, um, and he can prove. Now, the one thing I don't agree with him is he said how the Democratic Party is so anti-racist, but as far as I know, the history of the Democratic Party, it is a very racist, um, historically. So, I mean... But uh, that's just the way he sees it. So anyway, um, 
we're going to uh, see if we can find another juicy clip from this one and then go on to the next podcast. To compare, so obviously the, the New Deal state brought many benefits with it, um, but how, how do you see the, how would you compare the the heyday of the, the public university with what's going on now in terms of the question of diversity? Have universities become more diverse or, or less diverse in this way? Well, racially, they become more diverse. And I think that that's the crux of the issue. Uh, I, I think that a public choice theory and other forms of conservatism are deeply connected to white supremacism. Uh, and, it, you know, whether it's explicit or implicit and whether it's the strong version or the weak version, hardcore, softcore, the, there's a strong correlation between the the willingness of the majority, the white majority, to spend public money on public services and the whiteness of those public services. So the, the most important thing that happened from you know the 90s on was the racial diversification of the student body, and it, particularly in in public universities. And it's you know I, I actually did the the calculation for the University of California in the, in this state, you know, which is considered very progressive and very sort of not only diverse, but also kind of anti-racist in the, the, uh, on the level of its political leadership, you know, the democratic party, which controls the state is very, uh, interested in access and inclusion as a, you know, the main thing that, that higher education should do. And yet when you look at how the state actually spends its money, what you see is a direct correlation between the decline of per capita funding for the University of California and the share of the undergraduate population that is white. It's a lockstep relationship. I mean, I was actually quite surprised when, you know, when I, I graphed it out. Uh, so I, I think that, you know, the diversity and cheapness you know, the more that um, your population is students of color, the less interested the white majority is in paying and helping to pay for that. And it's, you know, it's what people are talking about now, sort of post-George Floyd as a systemic racism. So it, it independently of whether anybody intended it, which nobody really did, we got it. And I'm not trying to go back to the Golden Age University, which was too white and, you know, too... Uh, kind of intellectually confined in various ways and, you know, among other things. What I would like to see is the, is an investment per capita for a minority majority student body that is at least as good as what we did when we had a white majority student body. It's just, it, for me, it's just a, a question of equity and racial equity in particular. And it also, to go back to the previous topic. Okay. Well, I have a second clip from him. And he's basically saying that the GRE and the SAT are actually biased towards testing people's privilege and not really testing their student outcomes. So there's some more interesting stuff in this podcast. I was going to take time to go through it all. I'll put the link in the show notes. And... um, You are all welcome to continue listening. 
on your own. We're going to move on to the next so we can fly through some of these and clear out our backlog because really, phew, we got a couple hundred of these books to go through and um, I don't know when we're going to do it all. So we're just going to get a sampling, a taste, taste testing, so we can learn about um, how horrible things are and how we are violent ape-like creatures. Okay, let's go. In terms of the like the GRE, uh, you know, I have a research assistant who is studying for the GRE and she basically has been, you know, living with her parents and doing it more or less full time for three or four months. So that's obviously not something that is available to everybody who's um, taking the GRE. And it's, you know, it's a privileged position that discriminates against lower income people, first gen people, et cetera. So I, I, you know, I think it's pretty well established and this was true decades ago that, you know, SAT, GRE type standardized tests correlate best with socioeconomic status and not as well with student success, which is what they were always claiming to predict. They don't do a good job of that. So, you know, my university just made SAT optional. And, you know, I, I think that's a trend that's going to continue because it, people are really getting their heads around how discriminatory these tests have been. Okay, so we're heading back home. This uh, podcast is almost over. I'm going to give up waiting on our friend from the other podcast to join us. He hasn't gotten back to me. That's okay. Um, so I have been thinking about <clears throat> proofs, algorithms, and audibility. And I think we can introduce the concept of a function and say if we have a pure function that transforms something from one form to the other um, <clears throat> and it always does that and we always know when to apply it that we do not need to store an exact record of that of all the steps for the very simple reason that it could introduce a huge amount of data to calculate things and that we might get into the situation where our memory is just exploding because we also have to optimize this whole thing for memory and runtime so we got to find a balance between data gathering audibility proof of accuracy and usefulness. All right. Oh, well, since we're on the stream of random and you're actually still listening, I'm going to just tell you some more stuff that you might not be interested in. But I started using the Haskell package data parsec, which is a parser, and used it to construct a simple parser. And I'm really starting to like the language Haskell. 
It's amazing thinking we can rewrite our tree parser in Haskell that parses out different file formats from the compiler. Um, <clears throat> yeah. And um, I'm looking forward to all that. And I think it's possible to reverse the source code of what emits the parser. We can reverse that and um, and generate a parser from that language. So And then I have other ideas. It's like, can we compile a file on its own and accept undefines and define them automatically on how they're used? Like, can we tell the compiler not to error out on an undefined? Or could we analyze the error and then um, generate the definitions, run it again, analyze the error, and generate the additions, and just keep on doing that over and over again? Is that effective? Just some ideas. Anyway, we're going to wrap this one up. And I hope you guys have a great day, my no listeners. We're going to keep on plodding along here with no exit strategy and no hope. All right.